Welcome to They Live By Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined as always by my co-hosts, Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. Happy New Year, guys. How are you doing? Happy, Happy New Year. Year. Happy New Year. It's uh, so it's It's been a decent start. It hasn't completely went off the rails yet, so we'll count that as good. <laughs> yeah, first day in. <laughs> we're on, we're on day two of 2022. No one's... No, no one's dead yet, so I think we're doing okay. Yeah, I was actually <laughs> like, you know, maybe it was best that Betty White died at the end of 2021, so I didn't have to hear all over Facebook, like, ah, the year's already started out, shit. <laughs> well, depending on what part of the year, she probably she might have died in 2022. To any Australian listeners, you're sorry that your 2022 started, so shit. That's <laughs> <laughs> true, that's true. Just uh, before we go into the things, um, just going to have a slight change of the format that's going into this year. Uh, we had a chat, a bit of a huddle, just about things that we can maybe change or improve. You know, in the podcast coming into 2022, we had a pretty fixated format and it's not going to change all too differently. We're still going to go for the two films, uh, you know, and then sort of discussion on either side of them. Just going to maybe mix up how we're going to be discussing, or, you know, where we're pulling some of these films and, and how we're going to integrate our interviews going forward. So any OG podcast listeners will know that the old format was uh, Criterion Channel Film, Collection Corner, Criterion Channel Film, any other business. It must have been largely unchanged, except for when we have interviews and then we put those in the middle sometimes that are not too long. Um, one thing we are changing, we are still going to be watching Criterion Channel films. We are still running our Criterion Channel film club over on Reddit, the link of which is in the description. So if you do want to take part in terms of choosing what films are watched on that and getting into the discussion, we are very active over there and we'd love to hear more from you. Um, but we are going to stop talking about two films per week just because we found that sometimes we were shackled to having to talk about a certain film and it didn't cultivate great discussion and it wasn't just overly fun to talk about certain films that we weren't, you know, that we all didn't really care that much about. So what we're going to be doing instead is we'll have one film club film still. That'll be the first film usually that we'll talk about. And the second film are films that we're actually just going to choose ourselves as like a rota. Uh, maybe down the line, our, our Patreons are, might get involved and in maybe choosing some films. But for now, me, Chris and Zach, we're just going to choose on a week by week basis. Uh, Zach was up this t- this week uh, in terms of what film he chose. That'll be the second film that we discussed today. Uh, and then we're just going to rotate it around. We are going to be going back to Collection Corner full time. So Collection Corner will be back in every episode. But don't worry, still plenty of interviews that are going to be coming your way in 2022. We've just decided to have those as their own freestanding episodes, just so that we're not shackled by how much time we're spending doing our interviews. Sometimes we'd love to talk to people for an hour or two hours, and we're kind of thinking, you know, it's going to make the, the whole episode run way too long. So we're just trying to unshackle ourselves, I think you guys would agree, um, just making things a little bit looser, a little bit more fun. And just giving ourselves a bit of breathing room uh, when it comes to interviews and things like that. So, yeah, just wanted to get that out of the way pretty quick uh, before we get into our first film uh, for the discussion. Just before we do, um, it's the 2nd of January when we're recording. Chris and Zach, what were your first films of 2022? What, what did you watch yesterday, if you watched anything yesterday? Um, I figured I would start on a good thing, and I thought it was kind of funny. My first film of 2021 was Run. It was by the same guy who did the movie Searching from a couple years ago. So this time I decided to watch Blade Runner uh, for 2022. Start, start off well. haven't seen it in, like, God, 
probably over a decade. <laughs> so it was fun to go back. You yeah, can do um, you could do Run Lola Run next year. That's a good idea. I have that on my shelf and I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> and then I think Bruce Campbell's in a movie called Running Time. I have not heard of that, but I'm going to add it. You'd have to do Silent Silent Running as well by um, yes. The, uh, what was his name? Uh, Lawrence Kasdan. Is that him? Yeah. He did Silent Running, or am I making that up? I'm glad I'm going to be able to keep that up. Like I can just keep making run films. The first one for everyone. <laughs> I do want to note my last film of the year was Inside. So on my letterbox, on my stats, the, it nice. was basically just said Run Inside. I was <laughs> Sorry, I was wrong. Silent Running is Douglas uh, Trundle. He did the special effects for 2001: A Space Odyssey. Um, so there you go. Sorry, it's Bruce Stern. Yeah. So Silent Running. Um, my first one was Bronson, and I. Oh, how convenient. I, <laughs> yeah i barely i barely got it in because we have family in town and uh anyways but i but that was my first one nice uh, i watched uh jean renoir's the river yesterday nice. um looks gorgeous and it has some nice thematic stuff in it but i should have known not to watch a film about british imperialists because it <laughs> clouded my judgment on everything else so i should have known it was gonna happen but you know hey ho um it was okay so uh, the first film then that we're going to talk about is a film that kind of blew up when it, re- when it got released in 2019 and over the last two years it got sort of slowly released uh, around the world through various services. It's, it's become a, like a cult hit, probably is going to become like a, a major sort of cult film in the next sort of 10 years or so. Uh, it's a Brazilian film from 2019, uh, co-directed by Clever Mendoza Fio and Juliano Dornales, and it's called Baccarau. Um, I'm sure listeners, if you're anyway tuned into the world cinema scene or the out art house scene, you would have at least heard of this film because it's been very hard to ignore it as it's been slowly making its way across the world. Um, first off the bat, then, Chris, I know that you had seen this film quite a while ago. Zach, did you? How long ago has it been since you saw Baccarat? Because I know that you had seen it before as well. I believe Chris had mentioned it on a any other business, and I'm pretty sure I watched it right after that, if okay. my memory serves correctly. So I have the freshest memory of the three of us. Because I, I had been meaning to watch it for a long time because it came on to Mubi. I remember distinctly it came on to Mubi here in Ireland in the summer of 2020. And then when it came on to the Criterion channel, earlier in well i nearly said earlier this year (laughs) when it came onto the criterion channel in 2021 they advertised it as a um world prep streaming premiere and i thought to myself you lying you you lying bastards (laughs) that's not true (laughs) that's just simply not true um but yeah i've been meaning to watch it for a long time and yeah this film is this film is super fun Does, does anyone have any initial thoughts they want to jump in with for, for well, just in terms of like kind of some history on this, it's cool that um, I'm really glad we're talking about it now because do you remember uh, when we spoke with Kino Lorber, they, they also said like they specifically called out Bakura as a film that he had worked on and like he was working with uh, Mendoza Fila to, to get a lot of the um, uh, special features together and stuff like that. So it's come up on this podcast a few different times. So I'm so glad we're getting a chance to talk about it. Um, it's They Shoot Pictures has it as 10587. 
<clears throat> which is pretty impressive for a film that came out in 2019. Mm. Um, there's not even really a lot of films from 2019 on here. That means that basically as soon as it came out, people started putting it on their top 100 lists, which is great. Yeah, it's impressive. And I'm um, sure that number will probably go down and down and down as the years go by because it's a very impressive film. Uh, I, I realized I never gave a quick synopsis for those who haven't seen it. Um, basically, just the quick IMDb synopsis of this film is after the death of her grandmother, Teresa comes home to her matriarchal village in a near future Brazil to find a succession of sinister events that mobilizes all of its residents. Um, yeah, yeah I, I went into this film near blind. I didn't really know what to expect other than violence. because I just knew that there there was a lot of lot of sort of violence that happened in the film. I know that you guys had specifically mentioned it's uh, very sort of similar to a, a John Carpenter sort of genre mm -hmm. film. I definitely feel that it has sort of neo-Western vibes to it. It has obviously that sort of action revenge, but even like a sci-fi tinge. It has so much stuff going on. Um, it's a really, really cool, well-constructed film has lots of uh, different characters as well. You know, you don't just follow the one person. There's, there's, a, there's a lot going on in the film. It's a very colorful film in terms of its characterization and different sort of storylines going here and there. Um, it's a definitely a film that I know you guys didn't rewatch it when we had it in the film club, which is understandable. I usually skip those as well. But I feel like it's definitely a film that you could just watch over and over and sort of pick up on different nuances every time. Um, even though it's not like a heady art film or anything like that, it's just there's just a lot of different characters and subplots and stuff that happen throughout the film. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and what I like is, I, I think, and this is such a tough one to talk about because I, I think the first thing I'd like to tell anyone is, I think it's more fun when you don't really know anything about it. Like, you just kind of go in and watch it because the, the way the movie unfolds itself is you don't really know what kind of movie it's going to be. I mean, at one point you think it might be an alien movie and all these other sort of ideas. Uh, so it is one that it's so easy to recommend, but it's almost like, uh, almost like this worry too, that I'm going to like that you can, it's easy to ruin the experience for someone as well, because it's just kind of fun to watch unfold. Yeah, I completely agree there. I'm glad I went in like practically blind I say practically blind because I read the Google description for the film before going in. And since watching it, I've discovered the Google description is completely and utterly false. <laughs> Nothing about that is correct. So I technically went in blind because I went in expecting a completely other movie based on how Google described it. Um, but yeah, I agree. Like, like I said, I, like I knew practically nothing about it watching it, the sort of shocking events unfold and they are shocking things that happen in this film are quite shocking. Uh, especially like one particular scene, which I know a lot of people will be quite shocked by. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that really just goes out of left field, little twists and turns along the way. In terms of now narratively, or in terms of like content, they're, they're not really similar, but just in terms of like a film that I had a similar experience watching was one that wasn't it part of the film club, but in our Discord, it became a very talked about film that was Save the Green Planet. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys remember that one. Did you guys watch that when when everyone was talking yeah, about yeah. it? Did you watch it? I regret it so much not being able to watch it because ah, I can't that's... find it anywhere now. Like, Wild. It, yeah, it never ends up on another streaming service. I'm like, great. 
like it's nothing like Baccarat in terms of content, in terms of plot. It's nothing like Baccarat, but in just terms of like being brought on a wild fucking ride, it's it's exactly <laughs> like it. You know, you just don't really know where to where it's going, and um, and I felt like that with Baccarat. You know, it's it's a, it's a kind of film. It's kind of it is like an old genre film in a way. You just sort of sit back and just just let it happen to you, you know, let the twists happen, just become engrossed in the storyline and just sort of not really know or care where it's going. Just, just be very fucking entertained the whole way through. Cause that's what this film does. It brings you on a wild ride. It keeps you, keeps you engrossed, keeps your attention the whole way through. So uh, just quickly on Bakura. So I, and by the way, I totally agree on save the green planet in, in the context of how you're describing it. I don't think, People sitting down for both would draw a lot of comparisons between the two. <laughs> but um, as far as what you said of just kind of like about, you know, 20 minutes in or something, you're like, okay, you know what? Like, I'm just going to have fun with this one. Let's just see where it goes. <laughs> I think it's definitely in that uh, very same same style. I, I feel like, okay, so I love this movie a lot, right? Uh, but I feel like it, we have to kind of set the atmosphere of the film. I feel like the atmosphere is so important here, right? Because it... It, in a lot of ways, it's a very modern, like kind of rural town, right? There, there's you know, people are, are driving cars, like it's they, they go in, and they're, they're listening to like modern music in the, on the stereo, but it just, the town feels so like dusty and remote, right? It's like right out of the gate, you can tell that something is off just in the way that there's like a panic to their, because you see them driving to the town, right? Um, yeah. and, and you just immediately get this vibe that like something is wrong. And so I think some of the fun part of the, you know, the first act of the film is trying to figure out kind of what's wrong or what's going on or what's different about this time. Why is that grandma coming out in the funeral and like, uh, uh, and being so aggressive, right? Like you, you just kind of get this sense of like, something is different here. Uh, and I was nervous because a lot of times when films set it up in that way, it can either be a great payoff or it can be a terrible payoff. <laughs> and uh, that, that was one of my favorite pieces of the film is they set it up in such a way where you're like intrigued in the first act. You're like, well, I don't really know what's going on, but something's off. And then as that film kind of rolls on and you meet Udo Kier and you meet some of the townsfolk and you learn more of the history, you're just like drawn in more and more. You're like, oh, how's this going to end up? So that's probably my favorite uh, thing to talk about with, with Bacado. Just to uh, kind of add a little bit to that, a um, little bit to what you're saying. One thing that I think, I'm not going to say modern films. I, you know, this isn't a pro thing that plagues all modern films, but I do think it's something you see a little bit less of now is the thing I like about Baccarat is you get just dropped in a, pretty well defined and a world that feels lived in yeah it, there's great world building i mean there is nothing it never feels like you know that, that, i think there's an issue where sometimes you watch it and it just feels like everything's to serve the plot if it's not there it's very streamlined and a lot of times that's because that's expensive to do but you look at a lot of genre films that's that's so important to be able to believe the events that happened is just how detailed and textured the whole world feels. Um, so you, there's a lot that goes on, like you mentioned in the first act. Uh, probably the one that sticks out to me the most is, I can't remember, is he a mayor? The politician that comes in that everyone despises. Yeah. And just little things like that, like how much does he add? I mean, some, not a ton, but he adds some to the film. 
but it's just like little things like that that just kind of give this texture to the world that makes it feel so lived in yes and as there's not a ton of exposition they just kind of drop you in it right and you just sort of have to catch up which i love too yeah because obviously these people are going to be talking about like there's not going to be someone in that town that's confused who the politician is so you're just having to kind of pick it up like okay what are that what are they talking about what why is he here what is he doing and you know it, it, it trusts the audience in that regard yeah exactly yeah, it's certainly not a film that talks down to you. You don't even really realize it's near future until much later in the film. You know, when you see, you know, technologies and stuff that, uh, you know, that, that certain characters begin to use. Like, you could be forgiven. Like, there's a lot of anachronistic stuff in this film. Um, you could be forgiven, you know, for believing that it could be set in the 70s. It could be set in modern day. Just because the town itself is so sort of stuck in time. Um, you know, nobody sort of dresses weird. They all sort of dress in just normal clothing. The town looks normal. Everyone has sort of, you know, normal cars. You know, you'd forgive, you'd be forgiven for not sort of thinking this is technically set in the future until what happens later. I don't know if you guys have seen It Follows. Um, yeah, they, yeah. Yeah, they, they do, do something too. It's very cool. similar to that. Um, yeah, Use old sure. 70s cars, use futuristic tech. Um People wear modern clothing. And I think that's kind of, I think it speaks, especially when you talk about something, there's obviously a political nature to this film. I'm sure we'll get into, but, you know, it kind of highlights that idea of, you know, the time period doesn't matter. Um, when it happened doesn't matter because it, these type of events can happen and have happened at plenty of points. Mm-hmm. Maybe not yeah, to the yeah. point where there's alien drones, but, you know, similar. <laughs> <laughs> I just quickly on that point, I want to mention this because I think it's interesting to look at the the main, I guess there's two directors to the film, but um, the guy that gets called out seemingly more is this Kleber Mendonza Filo. And I thought it was interesting right before Bacadal, a few years before, he made a movie called Aquarius. And just listen to this. It's only like three sentences, but just listen to this description. Clara, a 65-year-old widow and retired music critic, was born into a wealthy family. She's the last resident of Aquarius, a two-story building built in the 40s. All the neighboring apartments have been acquired and there's plans uh, for her building as well. And But she wants to stay there until she dies. So she's going to engage in a cold war of sorts with the company. <laughs> so I feel like this guy, Mendoza Fila, I feel like he's really big into uh, playing on uh, people being taken advantage of by, by faceless companies or by, you know, these kind of uh, uh, maybe more relevant to Baccarat, maybe these, these kind of, uh, you know, there's like this, uh, what's the, the most dangerous game kind of element to the story, right, where people are coming in and hunting people in a town. And he's like, it, and it's these forces that are larger than the communities that they're, they're part of and sort of how the communities respond and fight against these larger forces that are coming in and trying to control them. Uh, that seems to be a theme for him. And I love that he's choosing this. I love that he chose this genre and this style of filmmaking to kind of tell that story. Cause I think it plays so well into his larger political message. And, you know, just to, you know, talk a little bit on the political thing that that's something, you know, I think when you have people like Paul Verhoeven, who have obviously worked in, genre pictures who have I guess all of them have exclusively had political messages you've had George A. Romero 
which is always had, almost always had political messages, but it was a little bit more varied. Uh, I think that's always fascinating. I think that's something you don't see as much now with a lot of genre pictures. And I think that's why this movie feels so refreshing is because it has that aesthetic. There's obviously something political you can take from it. It's there. It's not even hard to dig for. But you can also just completely ignore it and not even think for two seconds about it. And it would still work as a film. And I think that's really fascinating. I think that's what makes it enjoyable as well as even though he does have something to say, he's not going to pretend that everyone wants to listen to it. And I think that's kind of a fun way to do genre films in general. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just had this idea. We're, we're saying the term genre a lot. Do you think it's worth defining what, what we mean by genre film? I, I just, I have no concept of like, outside of, you know, because I love them, and I know Zach, we've talked about how much you love them, but like, is that a widely used term? Uh, would everybody know what it means by genre film? I guess it's, you know, that's one of those definitions where, I don't know, it's almost like uh, pornography, like, I can't define it, but I can tell you it is when I see it, and I, I mean, I'm <laughs> sure maybe one of you guys has a better definition than I could for it. I always find it a funny term, because like, every film has a genre. You know, genre. Right. You know, genre is not in itself a genre, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I suppose like when we like on on this podcast, and I suppose when most a lot of filmy people when we talk about genre film, we're more so talking about something that's not a straight laced drama, or you know maybe like, but then I suppose technically maybe comedy films would be called a genre film. Well, we when we when we talk about genre film, I suppose we kind of talk about either something culty like maybe exploitation films action films stuff that maybe kind of gets under appreciated by you know critics and academies and things like that um it's it's hard to put a finger on it for sure like like you said <laughs> like if i told you what a, if i said this film is a genre film i know what to expect but not really be able to put my finger exactly on a definition yeah, for, for me, it's always been the the big thing for me has always been like it's a it's like a nice way of saying a film that has a lot of kind of exploitation elements in it. Right. So it's like, you know, it's like a it's sort of a a, a term that you would use at like a nice dinner party to describe watching a bunch of uh, villagers get slaughtered by Udo Kier and, and some hunters. Right. Or like, you know, if you're talking about like Italian films from the 70s and you don't want to say like movies with a lot of tits and ass, you say genre film, <laughs> right? Like, I think it's like, it's like, that's kind of how I, I hear it used the most is people that are like trying to kind of draw out the artful elements of these exploitation films. Make and it not, more tasteful. More, exactly. Not just focus on the fact that it has nudity in it or it has like crazy, like I just saw Patrick Still Lives and there's a scene where there's a, there's a harp that goes in through kind of the bottom of the woman and out through her head. Uh, and, and it's done very slowly and um, it's, it's extremely disturbing <laughs> and you can either focus on the fact that there's like that kind of stuff in the movie or you can call it like this crazy genre film that I saw right and it's a way of like making it more uh, for, for polite conversation. <laughs> and you know there's you know listening to people who were you know filmmakers within it you know I always we talk about like having like a bunch of nudity in the film. It, it reminds me a little bit like what Roger Corman, who obviously is probably the 
you know, biggest name when it comes to genre filmmaking, arguably. You know, he's talk about how he did nudity. And I think you may have been the one who told me, Chris, that now that I'm thinking about it. But it was the idea that you put like um, nudity at the beginning, you put nudity at the end and just a little bit in the middle. And it gives people this idea that there's more into it than that. And, you know, I think there is, you know, I think that speaks a lot to, you know, the expectation like you're talking about. Like, this is what people expect. Doesn't mean we can't give them more, but we have to at least do that to get them, you know, to enter, the, get into the door in a way. Yeah, exactly. And I think there is a lot of artful elements within these movies, right? Like, would you say that Bakurao is only good because of the kills? Well, no, right? Like, there's so much going on. Um, and it kind of, I think using a term other than a violent term or a disturbing term, just it, it like frees up the mind to even focus on the other stuff in, in a way, which is good. Yeah, it's kind of like, a, you know, we've talked about Friday 13th. Well, maybe our only our Patreons have heard that. But, you know, we've talked about Friday 13th quite a bit. And I think that's a frustration we've all kind of talked about where, you know, it's a type of film where a lot of people do go into those for the kills. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, if you're looking for maybe something a little bit more or something to add to that, it can be kind of frustrating. And I think that's, you know, you know, I think that hinders Friday 13th as a franchise anyway, because that is the expectation. It is. Yeah, I suppose it, it, that's a good that's a good one to point out because I I wouldn't call Friday the Thirteenth a genre film. Really, you no. wouldn't? No, I would just call it a slasher film because that's all it's really good for. I don't I don't see anything artful about Friday the Thirteenth. So you would say genre film does have to have like an artistic element to it. Now, I, that, I, now that I'm thinking about, it, I wouldn't like until we had this conversation. I I wouldn't, but now that I'm kind of thinking about it, when we say genre film as opposed to say slasher film. To me, it implies, you know, maybe like we said, something maybe a bit more tasteful, a bit more artful, rather than just the bruteness of it all. So like Friday the 13th, I don't really see much artful with that. It's a slasher movie. But then say um, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, I would call that maybe a genre film. Because mm-hmm. yeah, it has violence and murder and stuff like that. But there's a lot that's in there that's also very artful. Okay, so that's that's maybe, kind of an for me. Way to think for about me, it, yeah. maybe that's where the line is. Now, oh, look, it's it's this is a this is something that's not written in stone anywhere, so it's going to be different for everyone, I suppose, isn't it? But um, it's just when you mentioned Friday the Thirteenth, I kind of thought to myself, I was like, you know what? I wouldn't call that a genre film. Just if I was talking casually, I would never say it was a genre film, and maybe that's where the line is for me personally. Right, and I mean, obviously, there are. I would say you, since, you know, I know Halloween is in your favorites, um, you would say there are slasher films that I guess could cross into that genre film, but it's like not all slashers are within that realm. Yeah, you know, something like Halloween or, you know, we watched Black Christmas recently for the film club. You know, there's a lot in there that's artful that, you know, outside of just being about, oh, we're going to go see some murders, we might see some tits, great. Outside of that, there is um artful remit with these films mm-hmm. whereas i don't personally give you know care too much about the friday the 13th movies um i think they're they were just there as a cash grab to make money and that's fine you know i've seen them all they're at the very least they are entertaining you know I, i'm not i'm not saying i i despise them or anything like that but i don't think they have much artful merit um whereas something like maybe halloween the first halloween and and black christmas and you know, something like maybe even the first like Nightmare on Elm Street film. I just think they have that little bit extra substance to them that maybe pushes them into more of, you know, can be maybe taken a bit more seriously as mm-hmm. art 
compared to Friday the 13th, if that makes sense. Except, yeah, yeah. I, I'll agree with you unless we're, you know, but I think Jason X takes the, the franchise in a good direction, right? Exactly. I will, I'm just talking about fr- the first Friday the 13th here. Ah, Sequels okay. and stuff. We'd be here for several hours trying to dissect which Friday the 13th <laughs> film has artful merit or not. Um, but yeah, I'm just talking about the original one. Uh, is all I'm really talking about here. But um, <laughs> switching gears back to uh, Baccarat, uh, I did find an uh, interview uh, since it was high, heavily influenced by John Carpenter and a lot of films from that, that um, RogerDebert.com actually did interview um, Carpenter after this film came out and did ask him about it. And I'll read an expert because I do think it's um, it, it's pretty interesting to hear them talk about it. Uh, described in Polygon Review as the best John Carpenter movie John Carpenter didn't make, Baccarat is forthright in its debt to horror uh, maestro even to... I shouldn't have even agreed to read. I can't read worth it. I can't read when it's pressure. Even if it's compact and stylish exploitation of a single setup for genre kicks. A fictional school in its central village carries the name of one of uh, John Carpenter while the film's wi- uh, widescreen cinescope photography and heady mixture of split doipers. I don't even know what that is. Slow dissolves and wipes recall 70s and 80s thrillers like Assault on Precinct 13. But the film's most fascinating callback to the filmmaker is the direct use of Carpenter's gunslinging S night off his first Loft-themed record in a key sequence. Say this again, Baccarat says, Carpenter, when asked about the film, I've never heard of it, don't know it, don't remember this, but they probably got the rights to use the music, so God bless them, they had to pay. He agreed to add the <laughs> film to his watch list. <laughs> uh, Carpenter's great. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I, I do think that uh, brought up a good point of it. You know, obviously, Night is a big part of that film. It's in a, it is in a big sequence of that film. But yeah, they, I think it is in Panavision aspect ratio. I haven't watched it, so I'd have to go back and see. But I think that it is in um, a Panoscope ratio. I'm actually, yeah, yeah I'm just wondering if I can find that. Easily. It was definitely very, it was very widescreen. I do remember that. Yeah, it is a wide film for sure. Usually, usually, um, IMDb has that information. Technical aspect. Two thirty nine one. Yep. Two thirty nine one. Yeah, just found it. Awesome. Yep. Uh, and the process was Panavision, according to IMDb. Nice. I think my well, I don't want to go too far away from Panavision. I I don't have much to say on. The technical side of films that's one area i need to kind of buff up on i guess a little bit i i just think that it, it just quickly like to go back to one thing we were talking about earlier as i thought about one of the reasons i love this so much i think that the best kind of films are the ones where like if you take the central idea of these this town being targeted by a group of killers right to just for sport and you were to take that away of specifically that it's um, like, like if you kind of remove the fact of, of the fact that Udo Kira is like organizing these trips and they're going in and they're killing them. If you take the concept up one degree higher and say that there are wealthy people targeting poor communities, like the message stays the same, right? I'm, I don't want to get into a big political discussion, but like that's certainly a topic that comes up a lot in different forms. Right. And there's certainly a lot of strong opinions on like the wealthy taking advantage of, of the, the poor communities in, the, in this you know, world. Right. And to take like to take that central idea, which gets people so charged up 
I mean, personally, I feel rightfully so, but like, like it gets people so charged up and to paint the brutality of the way that these folks are targeted by politicians and to put it in a light like this that shows how brutal it can be and how harmful it can be, uh, I think is where the power of this film is for me. The fact that it can so easily switch back and forth between what you're actually seeing on screen and the metaphor. Yeah, and I, and I think one of the elements that really highlights that the best, and it caught me off guard, so off guard the first time I watched it, was when the film switches to English. Oh, like, yeah. Like, we're, we're, what, with an hour? We're, we're yeah. using uh, Portuguese, is my guess. I'm, I'm going to assume it's Portuguese. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And then suddenly, it's almost jarring. And, you know, I think that works so well to its advantage because, I mean, yeah, we're going to talk about that. You can also bring up the colonialism aspect to that area and i mean north uh, the americas in general um to have that sudden switch in language it's it's such an interesting jarring feel to do that i didn't expect it to you'd almost feel like oh i'm i'm excited to not have to read subtitles here but at the same time you're kind of like oh this is kind of you know uncanny in a way i love that because you can look at it from two sides of this coin so Obviously, it's a Brazilian film. It's very its themes are very central to the political climate in Brazil and you know their their history with colonialism and everything like that. So when you're a Brazilian watching this film and it changes to English when all the villains are discussing, it's kind of like when we watch like a World War II film and it goes to like a scene and all the Germans are talking in German. And it's just so weird for then to be an English-speaking person to be put in that seat where it's like the, the, the best way I can describe it is right. There's this comedy series from that's from uh, Britain called um, that Mitchell and Webb look. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Um, they, the two comedians, they made a, they made another show called peep show. That's a lot more popular that you might oh, yeah. have heard of. Yeah. So the two guys that are in peep show um, Mitchell and Webb. They, they have their own comedy sketch series where they just do sketches and stuff like that. And there's one where they're German soldiers and they have their helmets on and they're like, they're looking at like the skulls on their helmets and they're just like, are we the baddies? <laughs> oh, are I know that bad? one. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's pretty mean. <laughs> and it, it's really just like, that's the kind of reaction you have. And then when you're watching, you know, Baccaro and you've been watching it in Portuguese and then suddenly all the villains are there chatting in English. You're like, Oh shit, we're the bad guys. Okay. <laughs> it's just it's a weird thing to be put in because obviously if you just watch, you know, if you just watch, you know, uh, American films or British films or whatever, the bad guys are always foreign. It's always a German or a Russian or something. So to be sort of have that shoe be put on the other foot was it was it's fun, but also kind of like, ah shit, okay, I'm gonna feel bad now. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole. One of the producers of this film, I want to watch this guy now. So he's a guy, he's from Tunisia. His name is Saeed Ben Saeed. And the film that he did after this was Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta. And um, I want to make sure I'm right on this. Oh, never mind. Never mind. Never mind. Yeah. So he did Baccarat and then Benedetta. And he's get, getting deeply involved in these kind of foreign films, financing foreign films. Uh, movies made outside the US, I guess. And I just want to kind of follow this guy because I know that people say Benedetta is kind of a, a pretty bad that's movie. That's Satan's yeah. Alley from Sorry? Tropic Thunder. Is that basically what that, is that the one that's basically that? 
Uh, oh man, sorry, I'm trying to remember. It, it's the one about Benedetta is the one about the the lesbian nun who's like yeah, yeah. It, it reminds me of the um, Robert Downey Jr. Tobey Maguire like trailer from Tropic Thunder where they're like um, <laughs> gay priest, and I, that's all I've thought about ever since that movie's been announced. <laughs> That's awesome. Sorry, I, I like Tropic Thunder. I can't remember it off the top of my head. Sorry, but um, uh, yeah, people are kind of saying that Paul Verhoeven, I mean, same thing he gets with every movie he makes. They're like, you know, it's too extreme and all this kind of stuff. It's a very Paul Verhoeven movie, apparently. But uh, yeah, I'm just kind of curious to follow this producer now. If he's if he's getting in with uh, Bacurau and, then, and now he's getting in with Verhoeven, I wonder if he has, uh, I'd just be curious to see what he comes up with next. That's kind of a cool, we don't really talk about producers a lot, but sometimes it's fun to track them because they're the ones that are really making these films happen, right? Yeah, I mean, usually when you're talking about like different genre films, really the two that get brought up, especially are Blumhouse and A24, you know, their producers and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, anytime it highlights, there's obviously other people working in the scenes to find their own type of style that Blum and A24 have. So that's yeah. probably worth looking into, honestly. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Was there any? Uh, I, 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 was there anything uh, that you guys had issues with the movie? Just that you can think of? Not off the top of my head. Um, well, there's one little thing that gets into spoiler regions. Um, so I don't know if we want to do spoilers because I feel like this film is just you're going to enjoy it so much more if you don't know what the fuck is going to happen. So I'd yeah, be happy. I, I, that's, yeah. I, I'd be happy if you guys maybe clear it up. It was just more of a, a confusion over a plot point rather than an actual issue with the film, if that makes sense. So uh, I'm okay not talking about it on the podcast. Well, I mean, I'm curious now. <laughs> okay spoiler warning spoiler warning there'll be i'll put timestamps in the description um why did udo kier start killing his own people at the end i just i never got that i didn't get that you know i'm sitting here trying to remember um i just thought maybe i missed something but i couldn't yeah i'm wondering if it's just something that's up for interpretation of the type of person he is like whether it's not not like like it's not like he turned on the whole thing like you know he was still happy to try and kill the townspeople like i thought maybe he had turned heel for a minute and maybe he was going to like be a good guy after his sort of confrontation with the with the other the new sort of matriarch of the village i thought maybe he had turned heel or something but like, then he didn't so i, I mean the only thing i can think of is maybe it um kind of shows not everyone is in for like you know obviously a lot of these people are in it for maybe racist reasons or you know yeah things like that and then it's like this is how these maybe it's how these type of people event because you have someone like udo kier who probably does who may not have like any racist underlines he just likes to kill people which i mean isn't better but it's this <laughs> idea of how maybe you grow these type of numbers when you can just get psychopaths like that to yeah. okay be a part of it fair enough yeah that's what i was going to say as well i think he's just I, like if you're thinking about this again as like what happens in the movie as well as the metaphor, like I think there's some people that are just like out for blood, right? And they're kind of enabling, like a lot of these tourists that come in, they're not presented as purely evil. They're This is more of just like a game for them, right? I mean, which is super fucked up, but like that's just 
this is just like a game for them to go like hunt down these people. Um, but here's the one who's organizing it, right? He's, he might have a different motive. He might just like the chaos or, or like the savagery of it. You guys are going to make me quote Batman now. Some <laughs> men just, some men just like to watch the world burn. <laughs> there we go. There's, I mean, running down, just put that motivation on anyone in a movie. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Okay, like thank magic. you for clearing that up. <laughs> hey, welcome back. And uh, so excited in early 2022 to do our first collection corner. Um, uh, I, I want to focus on some movies that I've ordered. You know, it's interesting. Every, every company kind of, you know, they talk about, oh, next year is going to be even brighter and better. And it's a marketing ploy. And if I was in their position, I'd do the same thing. But holy moly, like some of the releases that have come out as of January 1 are so great. <laughs> so uh, I'm just going to quickly highlight a couple of things that I've ordered. So I, I don't we haven't talked a lot about Shinya Tsukamoto here, but I love him. He's a wild man. Um, he's most famous for Tetsuo the Iron Man. And uh, everything he does is just kind of nightmarish, but but he's also very uh, artistic with it. And um, uh, Mondo Macabro is doing the North American release of Hiruko the Goblin, which is uh, probably the most famous image is like a spider with a woman's head on it. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's, it's very night, just full of nightmares. And I'm so excited this is getting a North American release. Um, so that's one that I have ordered. Uh, the um, Vinegar Syndrome. So we have to talk about <clears throat> this one, I think. So, our first, I hope this is true, our first interview was with Deaf Crocodile. Isn't that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And they are now at a partner label with Vinegar Syndrome. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. So January, they announced their first movie. And they're going to be, uh, yeah, they're going to be uh, a partner label with Vinegar, which makes me really happy because Basically, it means they're going to be selling out uh, of their of their stuff, and they're going to be in business for a long time. And we all know how much we love those guys. Uh, so very happy for Craig and Dennis. And the movie they're putting out is The Unknown Man of Shandigore, which I've been following them on Instagram, and they've been releasing some of the stills from that restoration. It's awesome. I don't know much about the movie, to be honest, but their, the work they did on restoring it is, is beautiful. Um, the only other, just just quickly, I'll talk about um, uh, uh, Dead Heat. Does that name ring a bell? Uh, Kinda. That that eighty zombie cop comedy. Oh, probably not. <laughs> Zach, I'm wanting you to cheer, uh, to say yes here. Have you seen it? I have not seen it. I did see uh, it get posted up at the first of the year, though. So I'm interested. Wow. I'm so excited about it. it the, only, the old one was a, a Anchor Bay release. Um, and uh, it has Treat Williams, who is like this kind of, you know, C-level action star. And Joe Piscopo playing the... the and Vincent uh, Price. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's great. So it's very goofy, but I'm so glad it's getting a nice release. Um, and then just very quickly then I'll say... Uh, the Grindhouse, not video, not the store, but Grindhouse releasing uh, has, they don't put out a lot of movies, but they came out very strong and they're putting out a, 
biography of Rudy Raymore, which should be interesting, but they're also putting out this uh, meat cleaver edition of Death Game. And it looks awesome. Have y'all seen the stills from this uh, release yet? Let me actually go take a look. I knew I saw that they released something, but I didn't actually take a close look at it. It looks really great. <laughs> and it's, what is it called again? Death Game. Death Game. So these are all instant buys from me. March 8th. Yeah. Oh, the yeah, author. yeah. I did see that picture running. Oh, that's actually really nice. Yeah. Uh, they're one of the ones, Grindhouse releasing is, I wish they would put out more releases because every one of them is stellar. Um, but uh, yeah, this is, it's a, it's a beautiful looking two disc kind of Blu-ray set. And it has a, a meat cleaver keychain that's coming with the set, which is great. I might actually use it as my keychain. <laughs> you know, I recently watched their um, Big Gun Down about yeah, within yeah. the last month i'd had it forever and i never sat down and watched it yeah they, they, i was surprised how like good that movie looked like quality wise it's great right a little um, awkward to watch because you pretty much have to choose between dubbed or having the uh, lee van cleef dubbed and it's like that's kind of a tough decision because uh, <laughs> there's no like one where you can do both where it's just either completely dubbed or it's in a different language and with italian spaghetti westerns it's awkward to figure that out anyway yeah we, still a great maybe, release maybe one day we can do a, a, a separate discussion around kind of italian films from the 60s and 70s because that's the audio from those movies is the most interesting thing to me how they would fly people in from like germany and the u.s and london and put them on set and basically just say talk in your native tongue and we'll fix it in post and <laughs> like what a crazy <laughs> yeah and know. like there's no natural sounds because half of them didn't have sound equipment on on set so they're just exactly. making it up yeah exactly um but anyways so for for uh, fans of genre films as we've been kind of talking about the year starting off with a bang and um uh yeah that's my collection corner what about y'all um so from one you know, super unknown genre filmmaker to another. Um, <laughs> I've ordered the 80th anniversary edition of Citizen Kane. Hey. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I went with I went with the 80th anniversary one from Warner Brother, which is the Region B release as opposed to the Criterion. Um, like nothing to do with the Criterion one. It still looks really cool. It was just more con- for convenience. Um, like this one was like about 40 euro whereas it would have cost me a lot more to get the Criterion one. Uh, this one is, you know, just as much good stuff in terms of special features and really nice packaging. And before you come at me, like, I'm not a K hater. I, I actually quite like, I'm probably one of the, in the minority of people who actually quite like the Citizen Kane Criterion artwork. Um, uh-huh. So it's definitely nothing to do with that. Um, it was just more convenient. Uh, it looks like a really, really great set anyway, in terms of like special features has these cool like a booklet it has nice card art some posters all the nice little stuff you like to get when you buy your special sort of collector editions yeah um it is a 4k release uh, i believe it also has a blu-ray but it's not the end of the world yeah it does has a blu-ray as well i am hoping to go 4k in 2022 um i literally just got i ordered a 4k tv that arrived just at the end of last week it arrived on thursday so my TV is now upscaled for 4K. I just need to get an actual 4K player. Just trying to decide if I just get a 4K player 
or if I maybe save a little bit more and just get an Xbox Series X because I did used to be a bit of a gamer, not really in recent years, but I kind of liked the idea of maybe getting the new Xbox so that it also can play 4K discs. Um, that's my that's my aim for 2022 is to get on the 4K right. train and no, no better way to start than, than with Citizen Kane, I suppose. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually going to wait and see you know, when you get some pictures of the set, because that's actually the one I'm thinking about getting because I am not a fan of the uh, giant K, but <laughs> <laughs> but I'm interested. In it. it looks like a really, it looks like Warner Brothers did a pretty good with that set, actually. Yeah, they, it looks like something they put a lot of work into. It wasn't sort of half-assed thrown together or anything like It looks like they put it out to directly compete with Criterion's. Yeah, and I think it, what'd you, did you, who'd you order it from? Zobby or Amazon or... Yeah, I just got it on Amazon. It'll be here during the week. Um, so I don't have it in my hands right now. By the time the yeah. episode goes live, I'll have it. Um, but yeah, I ordered from Amazon yesterday and they say it should be here by Friday, but knowing them, it'll probably be a little bit quicker, probably be Wednesday or Thursday. If the, if the studios represent Udo Kier and a, and a team of savages that are that are make, killing movies, killing the, the physical media industry, then the boutiques are like the village of Bakurao that is rising up and forcing the the elite to rethink how they do physical media, and I love yeah. it. I love it. But this was put out by the studio. That makes me so happy. You know, I was uh, over at a secondhand store yesterday, and it's. I swear, there's a new edition of Citizen Kane. I think every five years, because I think there was like a 70th anniversary while I was there. I think there was a 75th. I was like, they just will milk this death, which is. Fun to think about because how Citizen Kane wasn't beloved when it released. It had, you know, it earned its reputation years later. But I just think it's funny. I was like, that's one that they will just release. I mean, we'll get an 85th anniversary, I'm sure. Oh, it's, it's completely understandable as well. Like, I was surprised that Criterion were even able to wrangle the rights to it. Like, I remember, like, you know, those threads on the Criterion Reddit that happened like seven times a day where people ask for like films they want to release. And people will ask for Citizen Kane. And I was thinking, that'll never happen. Why would. Warner Brothers give up the rights to Citizen Kane, you know, it's like, you know, it's like just one of those films that you just wouldn't release the rights to, you know, like The Godfather or Pulp Fiction, they're just too easy to make money off. So I was surprised the criteria, you know, got it in the first place. Yeah, and I'm, I'm almost wondering if there was just a beneficial thing, because I know Warner does their own restorations in-house, but I'm, but they're kind of hit and miss, like they either have like really great restorations or they're very disappointing. And I almost wonder if they just went ahead and outsourced it with criterion to do with the, with janice films to do it but i mean i'm just speculating at that point yeah i actually didn't know so is, is citizen kane warner brothers yes well i assume it is if Warner yeah, Brothers I mean, releases here because obviously yeah, it was orko yeah, yeah. originally so it's whoever whoever bought out orko and they went under this is a uh, great question to ask the george eastman uh uh interview we have coming up because they have the warner brothers catalog so that might be I guess as soon as we get that interview scheduled, we'll have to remember to ask about Citizen Kane, see what he knows about it. Yeah. Adam, edit out that part I just said about their uh, restorations. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to ask uh, at least from the rights wise, like kind of how that got split up. But I mean, to be fair, you know, for Christmas I just got the um, the new Evil Dead box set that came out with Evil Dead One, Two, and the um the tv show ash versus mm. the evil dead have y'all seen this best buy exclusive that came out i heard about it yeah because mm. it was like well, like it's not really a complete set if you're missing two of the four films 
yeah, yeah, rightfully so. People are pissed about that, but um, you know, that's another one that just like Citizen Kane uh, gets a release every five years, pretty much on the nose. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't even know if Sam Raimi's involved in them at this point. I think he just like I, I already approved the uh, master, so do whatever you want with it. As well, just send me checks. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'll, uh, I guess I'll go. Um, so this year, my main focus is, uh, I mentioned to you guys yesterday, uh, for everyone at home, I've had a very, um, hourly rate job for the last several years. Uh, I did mentoring for a while, which was great money until the cases ran out. And then I had to go to target where, you know, it's target. Your payday is change week to week how much you can buy i have a salary job now which is fantastic for me and probably really really bad for me having to get another bookshelf at this point um so one of the things i really wanted to focus on this year is i'm doing i want to do more with premiums i have a few i have a hacksaw ridge one um i have the whaling seven a few different ones um and you know just to go big or go home the first one i'm hoping to get there's two i'm gonna get one if i don't get the other um two i'm really looking at getting hopefully i'll have those ordered by today is um a uhd club a blade runner great set i was describing it to them earlier um you know i really recommend looking into it don't look at the price because it hurts my feelings too um if that doesn't work out uh the other one i'm looking at getting is a doctor sleep one um that came out through black barons i think they're from taiwan but yeah basically i just uh at this point i just want to start focusing more on that um, try to get rid of many of these blue cases as I can because I really the more I, they're they're like my least favorite part of my collection so I'm gonna overpay for them not to exist but that's uh kind of it for me I haven't done a whole lot of shopping in the last month because of Christmas um, so a lot of the stuff I've gotten has just been kind of cheap stuff I found uh, like I found uh, my first Criterion pickup yesterday was Seconds which I've never heard of before yesterday but it sounded pretty good I don't know if you guys have seen it. Frank Rock Hudson, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it. I heard it's, I heard it's wild. It's like a weird sci-fi movie. Uh, yeah, it was like 15 bucks, uh, and I had store credit there. So I was like, eh, I'll give it a shot. Yeah, no, I heard good things about it. I haven't watched it myself, but from what I've heard about it, I think you'll probably like it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's the Frankenheimer. Yeah, yeah, I was just checking. Yeah, John Frankenheimer. He did. Do you like? Uh, did you ever see the Island of Doctor Moreau? Yeah, I have seen that. There you go. Oh, I didn't realize it was the same guy. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. Of course. To be fair, he also did uh, 2000s Reindeer Games with Ben Affleck, so he's had a mixed career. <laughs> 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 All right, and uh, so as we mentioned before, we're doing a new format where um, I get to take the brunt of it. So if this completely fa- falls on its place, face, I already messed it up. Um, it'll be completely my fault so for the first one uh i went with the movie bronson uh by nicholas bending reffin uh, a big reason I, I did want to touch on why i kind of decided to pick this one um one of the things i think uh, one of the reasons we decided to do this is because we all kind of like very different things when it comes to cinema that's kind of i think what makes this successful for us and everything else so i wanted to pick something that i thought would tick boxes for both adam and chris but probably maybe tick different types of boxes. Um, I think I, I hope they ended up enjoying it quite a bit. 
but to go over what the film is about, uh, the man, the myth, the celebrity, a young man who's sentenced to seven years in prison for robbing a post office, ends up spending 30 years in solitary confinement. During this time, his own personality is supplanted by his alter ego, Charles Bronson, not to be confused with Death Wish, Charles Bronson. So uh, what'd you guys think? Uh, Adam, I know you watched it before Chris did, since I think Chris got to it about 1 a.m. this morning. So uh, I'll let him collect his thoughts since I'm sure he's tired. So what'd you think? Um, so Charles Bronson sat at the Corova milk bar with his droogie droogs. Uh, no, I'm just joking. Uh, yeah, like this film is awesome. It's extremely fun. It's extremely entertaining while also being very artful and very introspective. Um, we Someone had brought up that they had read it was similar to Clockwork Orange and I totally see that, hence my little reference to the, the beginning of Clockwork Orange there. Um, it has a lot of Kubrickian aspects in terms of how it's filmed, its use of music, um, but this film is just totally unique in terms of how it's presented, you know, by having, you know, the character of, of Charles Bronson essentially tell his story wearing clown makeup to a stage of imagined people, you know, while essentially sitting in a cell is just such a bold and brilliant creative choice. I don't know much about the man in terms of his real life situation um, but if he is as wild and crazed and just bonkers as the film puts out, I'm sure he probably loved it himself if he ever got to see it. Um, but yeah, it was a super fun, super engaging film um, that, like you said, it kind of has both aspects of what you're looking for because, you know, it has those genre aspects, you know, the crime, the violence, things like that. But, you know, Nicholas Winding Refn, who I know is a bit of a divisive filmmaker, if nothing, his films are absolutely stylish and they're well-polished and they're very well put together. And you can absolutely say this about Bronson as well. I did want to note, since you brought up if he had seen it, um, I know originally in an interview, he had not been able, he was not allowed to see it. Um, okay. But his mother did get to see it and she really, really liked it. And he it. said, you know what, if she liked it, that's good enough for me. Um, and I think, <laughs> I think since then he has seen it. I think he said he liked it. And if you want to know if he's just as crazy, he actually sent... He actually chopped off his mustache and sent it to Tom Hardy. Wow. To like help him. <laughs> so he's yeah. just that type of guy. Wow. Yeah. He, he just seems like a real, like a, just a pure character. Um, obviously, we mentioned earlier the quote from the Joker, from the, or the quote from um, Alfred in The Dark Knight about the Joker, about some men just wanting to watch the world burn. Uh, Tom Bronson, or not Tom Bronson, Charles Bronson seems very much like that kind of guy as well. I'm trying to try to remember what his his actual Michael Peterson. Okay, I had to Michael look up Peterson. what his real name was. Was Michael Peterson? Was, uh, yeah. Any any question about the movie? Let me know. It's very fresh for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm probably um, the least fresh on this one. <laughs> so it's rated as 15 536 on the issued pictures, which I don't really understand how it's that low. Um. Yeah, that's super low. That's that's yeah. that's incredibly though. Like I, I would expect this to have been definitely in the top, you know, ten thousand. I, I guess it's. Well. I guess it'd be second after Drive within his filmography because I'm sure Drive is well up there. Yeah, and and I know uh, his Pusher trilogy. I know some people do like those, the ones he made before. Mm-hmm. I think they were in Denmark. I think some people do like those. Yeah. I can't imagine only God forgives is hanging around. <laughs> 
uh, the top if, 27. If, if you guys never have, uh, he has an interview with uh, William Friedkin, and it's hysterical. Because he okay. asked him what he thinks about Only God Forgives. Because William Freakin asked him, he's like, oh, it's a masterpiece. He's like, it's not. And like William Freakin just like goes in on him. <laughs> it's like, it is awful. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's that's so oh, good. that's awesome. Um, <laughs> th- so there, I was, I, I, I'm not going to make this as long as it sounds like I am when I start. It's just, but the, the, the film to me, as I was kind of watching it, is broken up kind of into three pieces and they all work for me. Like, there's the macro piece of like, what does a country do with a person like Bronson or like Michael Peterson? Like, I, you know, there, we don't really have institutions that are kind of set up to serve people like Michael Peterson. So that's an interesting discussion piece from this. And then I think there's the piece of like, just the man himself. Like he's, now I think he's changed his name to Charles Salvador because he got super into art uh, and, and his art's getting bought. So he wants to reference Salvador Dali now. So he's, you know, he constantly saw himself as like history's greatest something. He just had to find what that something was. And it turns out he was a pretty good brawler. <laughs> um, you know, I do want to, um, you know, go on your point about what it, you know, what does society do with that? I, I think yeah, I'm going to come from this from kind of a, you know, I used to work corrections for a few years. And you also have to ask the question of how much of it is their own fault, you know, the way he ended up. You know, he, obviously he was dangerous in his own way. He, you know, he, he committed crimes. But was he ever more than a petty criminal that they made worse? And I think that's really, I, I guess, a big point of what the film's trying to bring up, too. You know, how much does, uh, I, I'd say the state here, but, you know, there, I don't know how they divide things up in England. But, you know, how much is they to blame for how he becomes? Because, I mean, he, he, spent, he spent, what, 30-some years in prison for a seven-year sentence? No, it was 30. I just remember this stat because I was curious. It's 34 years in prison, 30 years in solitary confinement. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I, you know, obviously times have changed. In the U.S., you could never put someone in solitary confinement for that long because it has like mental, it can give you like serious mental problems, like oh, to yeah. be alone and to be that. Or the only, you know, the only person you see is the person who hands you food every day. Yeah. It's not, it's not healthy to say the least. Yeah. Um, and just, I, I want to talk about that, but then quickly, kind of, because you mentioned that the third thing for me was just this discussion on mental health and like how there's so much discussion in this movie around mental health without any specific call out to it. But, you know, as he, as he's on stage and he, and he starts to, as the movie goes on, one thing I think it does well is that like, you see him, the, the moment where he gets this Charles Bronson um, alter ego from the, the promoter the fight promoter when he's released that first time. Um, so then his side, his alter ego starts to make sense, but then you see it just, you kind of watch the descent, I guess, uh, into worse and worse mental health. And, and I think it's a, that's an, that's an interesting piece. So there might even be more layers to the film, but the fact that it kind of balances all three of those without over explaining any of them is, is one thing I really loved about the film. Yeah, like I think this it ends up being one of the reasons why Bronson's my favorite of Reffin's stuff is because it feels the le- the least self indulgent of what he's done, and I, I say that as a Reffin fan, I really do like his stuff. But you know, this is a movie he really could have probably justified a longer runtime, and I'm glad he didn't. Like, it's very quick; it's ninety 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 two minutes or something, and he gives just enough for there to actually be like discussion about 
what's going on and gives like food for thought in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely the least masturbatory of the Reffin films I've seen anyway. Um, it's probably my favorite Reffin film now as well. I used to really like Drive when it first came out. I think I was like maybe like 18 or 19 when Drive came out. And I thought it was cool as shit. And then I watched it about 18 months ago. And I'm like, for an 80-minute film, this film is fucking boring. He's, you know, that, that's kind of been, Drive has kind of been the second half of his career. Because Bronson, in a way, ends kind of that bleeder, pusher, uh, fear X, I think is the other one. You know, that type of style of film where he slowly, like, kind of trends in with kind of, I guess, Valhalla Rising, where it's like, they're short movies, but you're going to feel the length. Even at 80 minutes, you're you're going to feel it. And, yeah, you know, that's, you know, he's not one... Yeah, to, to just throw on and watch in the background because you're like, has anything happened? Has anything changed? And, you know, I like Drive, too. I think Drive is fine. I, I think it's not my favorite of his. It's a fun little stylish movie to watch. I think it's a good introduction to him to kind of get a feel for him, like how how he can be. Yeah, it's definitely stylish. And this film has style as well, you know, Obviously, it's it's very different from Drive in terms of its setting. We're, we're you know we're moved away from the streets of LA to you know grimy north of England, or I think actually no, I think it's actually London set in, uh, but you know grimy UK in the in what the seventies eighties, you know yeah. when things were not very good economically, uh, a lot of people were emigrating yeah. and stuff like that. So, uh, but it still has it still has flair in in its filmmaking techniques. Um, you know, I sort of mentioned earlier, it's kind of Kubrickian. And I do think that still, just in terms of how the camera is set up uh, and, and how, how the staging of the film works as well, it's very deliberate. Oh, it's interesting to call out the staging. So are you talking about, that? that's a great point. Though. Are you talking about kind of like, um, for example, every time the guards come in, they do this great thing where you can see him kind of getting his knuckles ready for a fight. Because you know, like, like he likes to hold these guys hostage, right? Like whether it's um, yeah. a, a, a guard or whether it's a one person who's trying to help him with art, you kind of hold him hostage. And then as they come in the door, he just you can see that look in his eyes of like, here we go. And the way that they kind of frame that is that what you're talking about, like with staging, like some of these type of. Not even to that much nuance, just in terms of, you know, he's always very much centered in the frame. And there's always a deliberation to make him seem massive because he's a huge character, you know, yeah. just in terms of his personality and everything like that. And I know Tom Hardy's a buff dude and everything like that as well. But a lot of the time, the camera will be perched quite low and sort of shot upwards to make him seem like a, this real Goliath. Like Tom Hardy is not a very tall dude. I think he's only maybe about 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, he's not super tall. He just happens to be, you know, he's, he's just kind of buff. Um, but they... Reffin does a very good job of making him look huge, making him look mm -hmm. like the, as big as his character is, essentially. Um, he, he makes him physically dominant, especially in the scenes where he's like walking around the cell and the camera's sort of going around and around with him. Yeah. And they essentially just have the camera low on a tripod, shooting kind of upwards and just sort of going around in circles along with him. Um, and yeah, and it's just the way they, the way they frame it to make tom hardy to look a lot bigger than, than what he actually is to sort of match how big of a character bronson is 
Um, I, I just like how Refn did that. It seems like that's what I mean by being very deliberate in terms of how it's framed and how it's staged. I, I wasn't looking with that much nuance as you to know sort of fists, you know, twitching or eyes bulging when people come in and out of a cell. Um, that's that's definitely the eyes of a, someone who's watched a film much fresher than me. <laughs> you know, I do want to bring up since you brought up Tom Hardy, I, I you know, this might be my favorite role from him. Like, yeah, I, think I so just too. think he's so good in it. Like he's I think he's a fantastic actor anyway. But, uh, you know, this is definitely a one. I think he it, it was one where he really got to talk a lot, which I think a lot of movies avoid because mm. his dialect and. Yeah, he likes to grunt a lot. Um, but, you know, this one, he, it, he he carried it. I mean, he had to carry it. Um, he had to put on tons of different, you know, faces and voices and, you know, give life to this type of character. And I think he does a fantastic job with it. I, I, this movie will be up in my top Tom Hardy performances, but I don't know if anything will ever top Warrior. Have you all seen that? Uh, Warrior's really good. Yeah. I haven't seen it. No, I heard it's good though, but I haven't seen it. That's the one. It's the UFC one, isn't it? Yeah. Like with all due respect to our, our MMA fans and, and our listeners, I probably have negative interest in the sport. Like Same. if it's, if it, it's, even if it's just on, like I have a hard time watching it. I don't know. I just am not drawn to it. Uh, but this movie, oh my God, it is powerful about two brothers and, like the fighting is kind of like used to to pull them apart and to bring them together, but in just very like brutal ways. It's it's a very well told story. Really, really good. Um, probably Nick Nolte's best performance, or at least up there. And I'm trying to find. I'm just looking through Tom Hardy's filmography just to try to see if there is something that I think I might prefer him in. But yeah, I mean, I obviously Dane. <laughs> No, um, not Bane. Um, although yeah, I, I can understand say. why Nolan cast him as Bane. He, he probably saw Bronson. You know, the physicality, you know, is very similar uh, in terms of the yeah. fight style. Of, especially like, you know, like when you watch Bronson box in this, it really reminded me of Bane's fight scenes in The Dark Knight Rises. Um, just sort of, you know, the fighting style and everything like that. So I can, I can definitely see, I know Hardy had worked with... Um, with Nolan before in Inception, uh, which was a much less physically demanding role. Um, but I can understand like why Nolan would have cast him as Bane after seeing Bronson, because, you know, especially with the fighting style and everything like that. Yeah. You know, I, I will say with Revenant, um, I don't think it's Tom Hardy's best role. I think he's fantastic in it, but I definitely think he had a better performance than DiCaprio did. Okay. And probably I haven't deserved an Oscar so. for that. Oh yeah, I've been meaning to see that forever. Yeah, he's that? really good at it. Like honestly, it's... I think Hardy's the standout in that movie. Your man in in Hurat, I can't pronounce his name. I don't think Zach's gonna be able to either. In Yeti, <laughs> yeah, that guy. He's... That too. That I've I've seen everything he's done except for The Revenant. I think. Oh, then I didn't see Beautiful. So those two. But um, God, is great. Have you all seen Amores Perros? Nope. Seen I've only seen the ones he won Oscars for. <laughs> oh, it's brutal. Actually, it's you know, there's that website does the dog die. Yeah, um, like that. Amortis Peros is probably the reason that website exists. Like, it does have some brutality with dogs, which is not cool. Okay, so um, no, no to that film. Um, yeah, <laughs> but it is so like he, that guy just knows how to pack an emotional punch. He, he's such. Anyways, we don't. Have, this is not the Inyaritu podcast, but um, 
I need to go see the Revenant. Thanks for reminding me about that. But uh, I'm trying to sit um, here and say, you know, I do, you know, we talk about the Adam. You brought up the connection to a Clockwork Orange. One, yeah. it connects to me a little bit, at least for a segment, is um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, when they drugged him out real bad, like that really felt like the last act of like uh, cuckoo's nest a lot. Yeah, and Hardy was great in that scene as well, where he's just like, like you can tell, like it was just something about his eyes or something behind his eyes that you know he wanted to be able to do. Like it's, it's, it was a very realistic depiction. I thought, you know, of despite being physically unable to do anything, there's still like lucidity there mm-hmm. behind the eyes. And yeah, Hardy was fantastic in that scene. There's, I, I like, I like that part of the film as well, where he is, he's, he's been sort of locked in with these, you know other characters who are you know not there mentally whereas he is a lot more lucid than they are and it kind of feels like Watchmen with Rorschach where he's like you're locked in here with me kind of a thing because he is a hell of a lot more lucid than a lot of these other characters that he's sort of locked in the mental institution with and it kind of feels like cruel to the other people to have him in there with them but I can just tell they obviously didn't know what to do with him well you know I think that's that's a big thing with the film I mean you know where does he belong? And it seems like he doesn't know either because, you know, he changes his name, he changes his identity. But, I mean, you can't have him with other inmates. You can't have him with, you know, drugged out with, with them either. Um, can't really have him outside. So, I mean, what do you, what do, you do with him? The, uh, yeah. We, without, I mean, that's a, a, a very, like, interesting topic to me. Like, we don't we don't really hear a lot of stories about people like Michael Peterson and you know because luckily there's not millions of, of him running around but nothing we have is set up to really like clearly understand how to deal with someone like that right because he chooses violence at every opportunity <laughs> yeah and I mean you know obviously like I said I've mentioned this before it's a different time um, you know even now we do a lot of research on like chromosomes and you know there's like the um xyy the you know the ultra aggressive i don't think he has that he didn't had the body type for it um because you develop a certain way but you know there is so much with genetics that it's when you have cases like that you know we we focus a lot on behavioral and that's important but you know there's going to be those rare cases where behavioral is not ever going to be enough you know you've either got to find a way to medicate properly to, or accept it, <laughs> that it's not going to change. Yeah, like he doesn't have empathy in, in the same way that a lot of people do, right? Like everybody that comes into his life that tries to give him advice or tries to give him help, like, or, you know, when he goes into prison, they try to give him medicine. Like he, you can see it in his eyes. He just doesn't accept it. He's like, you know, he says fuck off so many times in the movie but like he does it in a way that it's clear that he means it. Like he wants no part of that connection with people, right? Well, there's a there's a consent aspect too to that idea that you know obviously for him to be able to work in a society at large, you know he's got to act a certain way. But what is it if he doesn't care to do that? What if he doesn't want to be a part of it? What you know how does right. how do we deal with that as well? You know somebody who obviously doesn't want to change, um, and that's you know, fine in a vacuum. Um, maybe not when he's fighting a bunch of people, 
But I mean, and I think that's, you know, that I think this is why this type of thing works so well for reffing because there isn't answers for it. You know, there's no answer to that question. Not a real one. Yeah. He's almost like a man out of time in terms of like how he perceives the world around him and how he believes, you know, just how he behaves. He's like a man out, like he doesn't fit with how society expects people to fit right now. No, maybe, you know, 500 years ago in feudal times, someone like Charles Bronson or Michael something, whatever his surname was, um, maybe he could exist and, and, you know, be, be someone who could sort of coexist in that kind of world. But in terms of a modern setting, just there's no room for a man like him. Yeah, yeah and I think, I think that's, a, that's a good point, really, it is. Like, imagine him charging off a boat on a shore, raiding a village. Like, he'd make a great Viking. <laughs> well, this is the thing. Exactly that's what I mean. Like, there's, a, there's, a, a, there's moments in time where you would want to, well, maybe you wouldn't want to be like him, but you can see the value in someone like him, you know, as in Viking, or if you needed someone to protect your village, there's, there's, there's someone, there's a, there's a place in time for someone, for someone like him, but it's not now. We don't need, you know, that kind of character in, in society. Yeah. Now he's an artist. Yeah. And it was an interesting turn, you know, um, you know, when I went down that route, like, again, because I, I don't really know a lot about this guy, you know, outside of this film, I didn't really expect that turn. Um, in a way, when it started happening, I thought, oh, he's going to be rehabilitated through his art. And <laughs> then that doesn't happen. <laughs> no, it's almost like so art like, is so expressive, but it's still not expressive enough for him. No, it's just, it's just has so much to contain. You just cannot, it cannot be expressed in any way other than violence, it seems um because like even you know creating a new personality for himself it just he just has so much energy too much energy for any one person to ever be able to control it seems um yeah i i, I found it funny when you know i thought oh cool he's gonna become a painter he's gonna put all his feelings into that tortured artist no he's just gonna <laughs> he's just gonna beat the shit out of his art teacher now instead who <laughs> I, I had fun recognizing. I don't know if you guys had watched Ted Lasso. Do we have any Ted Lasso fans? Uh-huh. Yes. So, yeah, his art teacher is Ted Krim from The Independent, uh, from Ted Lasso, the sort of journalist that Ted Lasso That's has a lot of interactions with. That's right. Yeah, That's so I thought that was funny seeing him. Yeah, I thought it was funny seeing, especially so young, uh, without the big mane of hair that he wears in Ted Lasso. Right, um, right. But, um, um, I, I did quickly want to talk about his parents. So I, maybe this is another one of those things that has no answer, which is, is totally fine. But I thought it was really interesting the way that they used his parents in this movie because they seem to just accept him and like be happy to see him. And there wasn't a ton of, uh, uh, you know, there wasn't any screen time given to them feeling tortured about their son or having like, questions about his sanity it just kind of felt like oh that's you know that's just michael being michael what he's a sweet boy (laughs) well you know i think i think that's uh like you know i mentioned earlier the mom went to go see bronson and she liked it and i think that that kind of says a lot about them not in a negative way but just that this him expressing you know him being able to do this or express himself to get the violence out however you want they, I, I think they just feel that's 
him. That's who he is. And it's not that, you know, they see good in him, but at the end of the day, he's going to do what he's going to do. And I think they accept that. I think they're kind of purposely underdeveloped though as well, because and it happens a lot throughout the film where he'll interact with someone on the outside. And then once he goes back to prison, we never really see them again. So it happened with, you know, his first partner who he had the children with, and then he went That's to prison true. and then we never really saw her again. And then when he got out of prison, he went and met with his parents. And once he finds out that they don't have all his old shit from the old house, we never see them again. And then he gets out and he sort of proposes to that girl who's stringing him along. And then he goes to prison again and we never see her again. So I think they're kind of purposely underdeveloped to make sure that he's still the focal point of the film. Maybe the aftermath of his actions are not really important. The film is just kind of looking at the man himself rather than the repercussions of his actions, if that makes sense. That's a good point. Yeah. And I guess in that sense, you know, the, the focus, the most of the focus for him, you know, the, the movies from his perspective is, you know, obviously his trials and tribulations, the things that, the people he thinks are to blame or the reason he's the way he is. And he may not see his parents that way. Not really. Um, may not put the blame on them. So what's the point of focusing on them? They're his parents and they're there. Because yeah, he's a man of principle. Do you remember it? That's how he starts off the movie saying he's a man of principle. <laughs> oh man, I, I, I need to rewatch it. I'm trying he to remember the very beginning. <laughs> Yeah, I think his principles probably differ from everyone else's principles is the only thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, he that he he does talk highly about his parents at every and well, even the quote you said at the beginning, Zach, like if my mom likes it, I know I'll like it. Like what an interesting comment to make. Yeah. I mean, you know, he obviously has a lot of trust for them. And I mean, I couldn't imagine like my mom seeing a movie like this about me and her liking it. So I'm like, that's kind of <laughs> interesting to me in general. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I suppose, though, like, he's never really seen as much of a, of a vindictive person. Like, I'm just trying to remember if there's any ever sequence in the film where he, he purposely hurts someone purely because he doesn't like them. I don't um, think there is. I, I, don't, I think, don't think there is. No. I think that is that man of principle. You know, he, every piece of violence he does, he believes he's justified in it. Yeah, like, even the part where he, like, takes the guard hostage. Like, he never hurts the guard. He just he shouts at him and stuff, but... You know, he never hurt. Yeah, he yeah. Just, like, like he doesn't. He doesn't actually harm him, really. Well, maybe emotionally, but physically. Yeah, like, I, I don't think he comprehends that. I think he's a very physical type person. Like, yeah, he's like, if I don't physically hurt them, I didn't hurt them. Yeah, yeah. I, I can, I can see that, especially you know, shown sort of from the very first start of the, you know, when he's sort of talking to his childhood. You know, he always liked to scrap. You know, that's where he sort of does his damage, whether. You know, if he if he goes to prison for trying to rob an engagement ring, he doesn't really see that as him hurting someone else. You know, he doesn't see that as hurting the people around him. You know, it's just kind of a means to an end or going to rob a post office with a shotgun. It's like, well, I was just doing it. Why, why, are, you, why are you so upset? I didn't you actually know. shoot anybody. So what? Yeah, exactly. What's the big yeah. deal? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of view into his mind that I don't think any film's ever going to really be able to 100% get into his mind, but this is a best way to sort of maybe present his, his reasoning or his, his thought process. And, you know, I do want to highlight Refn because I was reading this too, that he was not allowed to visit him in prison because he's not English. Tom Hardy was the one who had to do all the visits. 
So it's interesting to see it. You know, Reppin is looking at this at a very outside perspective, while Hardy gets to actually play him from someone. Apparently, they became friends and very close. Um, so I think that's kind of that interesting. I guess dichotomy would be the right word. You know, just to yeah, have yeah. those two perspectives playing at the same time. And it probably, mm-hmm. ended, I'm sure Reppin would have rather been able to get to know the guy. But I think it might actually be to the film's benefit that he's looking at it almost in a voyeuristic sort of way. And I think it's what makes it more like I, I think this film definitely is an actor's film rather than a director's film. Like it's still a really well directed film, absolutely. And you know, despite me talking kind of shit about Reffin, I do respect Reffin more. I, I respect him a lot. You know, from he has a vision, and I can always respect mm-hmm. someone who has a vision. He's not a cookie cutter kind of filmmaker. Even if I don't particularly like all of his films, I still respect an auteur. And I do respect the work he does outside of filmmaking as well in terms of his restoration work. I've watched two of his restored films personally myself, uh, one of which I've talked about before on the podcast, Night Tide with Dennis Hopper. Um, so I do respect him as a guy, as a, as a person. Um, but this is, this is an actor's film. If you are studying acting, this is, a, this is the kind of film you'd watch because Hardy just puts so much in and really... He, like he is the force behind this movie you know if you have a lesser actor in this role it does not work the film does not work with a lesser yeah, actor right. jason statham was originally supposed to play christ on a bike imagine if jason <laughs> statham was in this movie it would it would be shit As, you can put any filmmaker behind that lens but if you don't have the right actor for this part it does not work you know no, kubrick himself could have risen from the grave to make this movie <laughs> and if you have jason statham playing the lead role it does not work i'm honestly surprised it didn't end up being like mads mickelson i know i'm saying his name incorrectly but i've never heard the correct pronunciation because i would have i would have said the same way reffin puts him in like everything like at least in his early career yeah he does intensity well but this movie required more than just intensity it's it's a physicality yeah physical presence yes absolutely physical presence like i said earlier in terms of how the movie's made in terms of making Tom Hardy look like a mountain, I'm just curious. Is maybe I'm maybe I'm lying, but I'm I'm certain that Tom Hardy is not very tall. Uh, I feel like right? him and Charlie Theron are around. The, they were around the same height in Mad Max. I just want to look at his height and feet because my American, my Irish. You're right about the camera feet. angle, anyways. I mean, that's like it. It is usually shot from waist. Uh, up. Yeah, he's five foot nine. You know, that's like five foot nine dude you're not gonna be scared of i don't know what what height you guys are but i'm not scared of a five foot nine dude but i'm, I'm scared of tom hardy so no <laughs> holy shit okay <laughs> i wasn't expecting that it's so weird when you only know people virtually you just don't put height into perspective um yeah you're you're deaf if i'm not i'm 511 and i'm not scared of a five foot nine dude you're definitely not scared of a five foot nine dude but i'm scared shitless of tom hardy in this film i would not want to meet him in a dark alley so and I think like the phys- like what he does physically in terms of his presence and in terms of how he projects himself in this film, along with the the clever camera work from uh, from Reffin, just really you know really elevates the performance as well. Uh, last thing, just on the performance, I wanted I just felt like I, I want to call out is I, I like the moments that they cut to the stage acting, like where he's actually on a stage in, in yeah. makeup. Um, because it typically is, is really close to a moment where he's at a heightened emotional state. 
So he'll have something really sad happen. Like the first time he was sentenced to seven years and, he, and you see him crying is the first time it cuts then. I mean, the movie starts out with him on stage, but then it goes backwards in time. And then the first time it cuts to him on stage is when he has this kind of emotional moment where he's crying for being locked in for seven years. Um, and so it, it starts to do this thing subconsciously where when it cuts back to him then in, in real uh, time or whatever, you see that there's a lot going on behind the eyes and there's a lot happening there in the brain that you don't understand. And I think it helps his performance the way that they did that editing because there's moments when, like you called out the one in the um, psychiatric ward where he's heavily drugged up, that guy leans down and starts to say, hey, we're the same, I understand you. And you can see it in his eyes that he doesn't agree. <laughs> he's frothing at the mouth. He's like, he does this kind of muted like scream at the guy. Um, but you can just almost picture that guy on stage like talking about it, uh, you know, like the voices in his head kind of talking about it. And so I think those two play off uh, very, very well and give him a stronger performance as well. Cool. And now, as always, we're going to finish up with any other business, just part of the podcast where we like to just highlight a film that we've seen recently that we want to give a shout out to. Um, I suppose I'll go, I'll go first if you guys don't mind. Um, I, over the Christmas break, I was just, you know, just looking through stuff and I noticed an ad for the Arrow player, which I really wanted to start getting into. But for the longest time, it was only available in the US or the UK. And I wasn't, I wasn't bothered to use a VPN for it. Um, but I noticed that they they had expanded it now to Canada and Ireland, which I was very happy about. So I signed up to the Arrow player, not really expecting much, but I was like blown away by the amount of content and the amount of yeah. like new stuff they have on there. Like they pretty much like when they release something on Blu-ray, they pretty much put it on the player like immediately. So yeah. I was like spent ages like compiling a huge watch list. And like one set, like I was not expecting it to be on there. And it's the new Shaw Scope set, the Shaw Brothers box set. And I'm like, this is all on here, including all the special features. And it's only five euro a month. Like, what am I? I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm scamming someone with the, <laughs> you know, I feel like, I feel like there's like a catch here, but no, like it, it was great. So I, I watched the first film from, from the Shaw Brothers set, um, which is, um i can think of the, the american title is five fingers of death uh what was it called in the set uh something box king boxer sorry yeah it's called king boxer in the set but it was in the u.s it was known as five fingers of death because that's the most 70s kung fu name you could probably give to a film um but like you guys know i've never really watched kung fu movies it was just it's one of like my big big blind spots in cinema like i've seen so much from all around the world but like just kung fu movies in general just i'd never really seen them i'd never really had exposure to them growing up or anything like that I'm, like i've never seen a bruce lee movie or anything and um, so i thought I, yeah i know <laughs> so i thought look let's just go through this let's just start watching these movies they're here they're easily available for me right now so yeah i watched the first one and like i thought it was so fun like it's obviously it's not classic cinema or anything like that but like the action sequences are awesome. The fights are amazing in terms of like, like even like the sets and stuff. It's really cool. Like I was reading a bit about it, you know, about how basically Shaw brothers had this essentially movie town in, 
in Hong Kong, like on the outskirts of Hong Kong, they had this essentially this big town where they just made all their yeah. movies and built all their sets. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I thought that was super cool, and yeah, it was it was really enjoyable. I'm gonna be working through the set pretty slowly. I'm not gonna binge them all or anything like that. I'll maybe not watch like one or two a month or something. Um, but I'm gonna go through the rest, and I'm super interested now in watching more um, of these of of these kind of films. You know, kung fu or like Chinese swordplay. I've a bit of a sort of taste room now. I have a few on the way from Eureka. Eureka, we're doing a sale on those kind of films around Christmas. So I have a few on the way from there, including Police Story 1 and 2. Obviously, I've seen Police Story, as we know, which we talked about it a few podcast episodes ago. Mm -hmm. And then I also ordered uh, Raining in the Mountain and A Touch of Zen. They're both by King Hu. And then I also have Eureka's edition of Once Upon a Time in China trilogy, which I know obviously Criterion put out recently. Uh, this is the Eureka version of that. So I'm looking forward to getting all those and obviously going to be delving more into the Shaw Scope set uh, through the Arrow player. So yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into a part of cinema I'd never really taken that much of an interest of or had any exposure to. Was it raining in the mountain? Wasn't that like a pick? And, yeah, oh, it yeah. Was, I thought it was it, an option. It came second in the back row. That's right. That's between why I was that like, and why does that one stick out so much? But yeah, it was almost our pick instead. Yeah, yeah. It came second in the in the back row poll. I'm trying to see if they if this set goes into doesn't have a lot of Wucha stuff. So one thing to put on your list if you want um, to there, there's so many different styles of. The kind of subgenres, I guess, within the kung fu, you know, um, uh, catalog. If you if you start going down that route, some of the ones I like the most are if you look at W U X I A films, wuxia films. Wuxia, they're uh, like the, the swordplay films, aren't they? Yeah, and it's very much like it's very like operatic. Like it's a lot of the scenes in Shang Chi when they're like kind of flying through the trees and like yeah, you know, it's like, yeah. It's like a lot of that. Uh, I was paying homage to that. And uh, it's it, there's some beautiful films in that genre as well. Yeah, because I, I remember many, many years ago, I did see uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, and yeah. I always thought that that film looked awesome. So I think Raining in the Mountain and Touch of Zen, they're both wuxia films, as far as I'm aware. Um, uh, Once, upon, or Once Upon a Time in China, I don't know if you can tell me if they are considered wuxia or not. Not quite. It's sort of like a mix. Like uh, they're They're just... It's all very rooted in, in, in stunts that people can actually do without, um, you know, like strings pulling them around or whatever that's called. Um, without yeah, being, I get you. Um, but uh, it is also very extravagant stunts. It's not quite as brutal as Jackie Chan stunts, but it's kind of somewhere in between. Very, very creative choreography. Um, the yeah. first Once Upon a Time in China film, there's this amazing ladder sequence with these sort of 20 foot or 30 foot tall ladders and the way they're kind of like using them and, and like, like somehow they're, they're at points, they're like uh, balancing on a different ladder with each foot and still fighting. And it's like, it's just this beautiful kind of choreography that you think like, how is this possible? <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, those, those movies are fun too. Cool. Yeah. I'm looking forward to getting into, getting into those. I can't wait till two weeks from now. Adam's like, so for collection corner, I got the uh, Shaw brothers set. Totally. <laughs> But I don't need to know arrow the arrow player. I don't why why would I buy them? I can just watch them all on the arrow player. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I'll, I'll go next just so uh, I'm, I'm, there's one segment that I'm not ending here. Um, I, I have to talk about, I, and I guess we kind of mentioned this to the Patreon listeners, this is going to be a bit of a, um, a rehash here. But I finally sat down and listened to the commentary for Armageddon that has Michael Bay and uh, Bruce Willis and um, uh, Ben Affleck. And they're all exactly who you think they are. <laughs> and that has to be the best commentary ever recorded. I mean, I'm sure that's, you know, whatever. I'm sure there's one that, that I'll find one day and, and brag about in the same way. But, like, Michael Bay is hilarious in the sense that he's exactly who you think he would be. Like, there's this one scene uh, where he's like, okay, okay, don't be mad at me here, okay? But, but people ask me why there's a gun on this ship, okay? I know it doesn't make sense to have a gun on a spaceship. I know that. But Mattel came to me and they said, hey, Michael, just so you know, like, you know, ships sell better, the toys sell better if they have a gun on them. So that's why there's a gun on it. And he's not joking. Like, he's not saying that with irony or something. He's like, okay, don't be mad at me here. (laughs) Um, um, Also, I have to mention, I feel vindicated because Ben Affleck calls Michael Bay the love child of Tony Scott and uh, James Cameron. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Here we go. So I felt very vindicated. uh, but no, but the real star of the show, oh, uh, quickly I'll mention Bruce Willis is exactly who you think he was. The longest sentence he utters is probably four words, and he just sounds like he doesn't care at all. He's like, yeah, I was in this scene and it was pretty fun. Or like, <laughs> you're just like, why are you on this commentary? Um, they need a straight man for Ben Affleck. You what? They needed the straight man for Ben Affleck. Yeah, this exactly. comedy segment. And then Ben Affleck gets on. Oh, so they recorded these uh, audio commentaries separately and kind of pieced them together one after the other, right? And so then Ben Affleck gets on and he, <laughs> like, for probably five minutes of his time, he's talking about every time Billy Bob Thornton comes on screen, he's like, wouldn't it be funny if they did Sling Blade here? And he was like, <laughs> hey, guys, we're going to go up to space. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> he like, does the voice. But he like does it for like five minutes, <laughs> and then yeah he he does the thing Zach you mentioned earlier where he's like so Michael wouldn't it make more sense to have astronauts trained to be drillers instead of finding a bunch of roughneck drillers to be astronauts? He's like shut the fuck up Ben and and like he's just basically like dogging on the movie, uh, and he like I don't know it's amazing it's very entertaining it's a two and a half hour movie so it's it's long like. And, you know, whatever. I mean, I guess it, it, it was very popular. Um, uh, it's a decent watch. I don't know. I, I don't like the movie a lot. But it's a decent watch. Uh, but it's definitely made better by the commentary. So that's all I'll talk about. There's a bunch of stuff I've watched. But that'll be my any other business. Watch that if you can. It's amazing. I know uh, one of my favorite parts of that commentary that I remember is that every time he's talking about Bruce Willis' character, he refers to him as a salt of the earth type guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't even think he ever says his character's name. He's like, this salt of the earth type guy, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> um, I'll finish up, even though I feel like that should have been the end. I think Chris should have finished that up, but I digress. <laughs> I will uh, do mine. Um, I was going to talk about, um, I started watching only the, uh, 
Too Old to Die Young, which is actually the t- uh, TV show that Reffin did. But honestly, I'm kind of tired of talking about Reffin now. So I'm going to just switch gears real quick. And uh, the last movie I watched this year was Inside, which is a French, um, new wave French extremity movie. Um, so, you know, you have your like high tension, you have frontiers, all that, where, you know, they just try to bloody up the screen as much as possible. Um, this one is essentially about this woman. She loses her husband like a few months prior to a car accident. She's pregnant. So, you know, she's carrying this baby on her own. She's not doing very well. Um, I think, you know, obviously she's having kind of a tough time with it. And a woman comes to her house who intends to cut her baby out with a pair of scissors because she doesn't think she's going to take good care of the baby and she wants it. Um, it, it, it's it, pretty basic stuff. It, I, I love the way the film looks. There, there's some cheap looking like CGI in it, but you know, it, you gotta love the ambition they did. You know, they needed her to punch like a mirror and they're not actually going to ask the actress to cut her hand up, obviously. So it's obviously CGI in some of those parts, but the look of the film in general just is really cool. Like there's a lot of like, noirish um jallo type of look in different scenes especially when the um mysterious woman's coming to like try to cut her baby out and stuff like that like she's dressed in like all black with the black gloves and um sometimes the she's only lit up like if she's outside by like when she lights a cigarette you can see her eyes and that's it just it's just a really cool uh, film it's very violent if you're squeamish i definitely wouldn't recommend it um, if you think certain things are probably going to happen and you would really, really hate to see that, you, you'll probably get that. So, you know, be wary. But I think it's a fun time. It was, it's a nice little Christmas movie because, you know, just like Home Alone, it takes place on Christmas. So it's a Christmas movie. <laughs> um, so uh, and that was my last film of the year. I thought it was a good way to end it. <laughs> Christmas movie inside. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard about Inside. I have no interest in watching from what I've heard about it. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, it expired from the Criterion channel uh, two days ago. Uh, that's why I had to sit down and finally watch it. I was like, this thing's going to expire, and it never shows up on streaming services. So I was like, I'm going to have to go ahead and power through it. That wraps up this week's episode of They Live By Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. And you can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care.